You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Welcome back to 1130 AM, KZOM, Oleander, Oregon. Up next, we have a showcase of the shows that are found on this radio station in podcast form. So people from outside of the town can enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. Please enjoy some Radio Free Oleander. This episode, we will be covering Goblins with Ken Height. DB will be talking about Prog Rock is Weird Fiction. Dave will be talking about Pop Culture. And then there'll be some Farm Report. All right. Thank you so much. And here's the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back. And today with us, not in studio, of course, uh, we have the world famous Ken Height. Hey. hey, Ken, how is it going? How, how's, how's everything in Chicago these days? Uh, well, these days, as I sit here, the weather is literally perfect. Great. Uh, we have had a pretty gorgeous summer all year, mm-hmm. and, or all summer anyway, and I feel personally betrayed by that, quite frankly, because this <laughs> would be an ideal summer to run up and you know go to movies and bars and outdoor stuff. And oh, sure. Do a million things that I can't do, so... It's a good summer to sit in my backyard and drink, though. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. No, I, I feel a little bit cheated living uh, in uh, the Pacific Northwest, and it's, like, really nice. And it's like, well, hey, uh, normally it's rainy. This, <laughs> yep. I feel like I'm double cheated, but, yeah. So, uh, speaking of the Pacific Northwest, uh, actually, not speaking of the Pacific Northwest at all. Um, I was really wondering where you were going to go with that. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to segue goblins in the Pacific Northwest, but I guess I'm just going to say, hey, Ken. Hey, Ken. Speaking of Eugene, Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> and Corvallis, possibly. But definitely right. Eugene. Oh, yeah. I, don't get me started. Uh, right. Goblins. Um, how? Okay, so where do they come from in, like, our folklore is, I mean, I, I don't think they came from D&D for sure. I'm 100% no, sure. No, Do- goblins predate D&D by like 600 <laughs> years at okay. least. I, that's I, just the, the word goblin. So, you know, um, goblins, uh, basically, virtually every culture has stories about little people that you can barely see out of the corner of your eye. And gotcha. In Europe, they're called fairies or elves or goblins or whatever, and in sort of the general Northwest European folklore that uh, you and I grew up in, Mm -hmm. goblins are any of those things that tend towards the mean or mischievous side. Gotcha. Whereas fairies or pixies or sprites are maybe towards the less mean, although probably still pretty mischievous side. Now that is, even that itself is just sort of us sorting out the concepts based on Victorian folklorists hmm. and Victorian kids authors, mm-hmm. because as far as anyone can tell, the words goblin, fairy, uh, all these were used basically uh, either indistinguishably, uh, because they had just a bunch of words that meant uh, little annoying supernatural creature, or they had, you know, uh, a specific regional word. So, for example, in Germany, you have the kobold, mm-hmm. right? Which is uh, began, they say, as a miner's uh, legend of a, a little monster that lived in the mines and would, like, steal your pick or, or shove you into a hole or whatever it would do. And kobold is basically a very similar word 
the goblin etymology because it comes from the German kob, meaning a, a hollow or a cave or a hole in a rock, uh, and that in English becomes cove, uh, for example, and then it also in Norman French becomes gobe, mm-hmm. and then a little thing that lives in a hole in the rock is a gobelin, a goblin, right? Ah, okay. And that's where our word goblin probably comes from. Now, uh, some people tra- take it from a Greek word, uh, kobolos, which means uh, rogue or uh, imp, mm-hmm. and that is generally used of a people, not of a supernatural being, but you could imagine, you know, uh, some, you know, medieval Greek shouting, you know, you little imps at the goblins and that name sticking. So, uh, but I like, you know, gob to, uh, cob to gob to goblin because that's a very clear and obvious method of of transition. Uh, But like I said, the word in English comes from like the 14th century. um, uh, And it goes all the way back in Latin to the 12th uh, century in Normandy, where they gave it the... uh, uh, the the personal name uh, Goblinus, meaning a small devil, huh. and he haunted uh, Evro in Normandy and was a jerk, and so he was named uh, the Goblinus, and that is probably where the Normans get it. So we get it from the Normans, thanks to the Normans conquering England, and then it becomes the English goblin and uh, blows up thereafter. But the the distinction that we make in our heads between good fairies and evil goblins is or between nice fairies and mischievous goblins is generally uh without foundation in actual medieval folklore for example a hobgoblin which we now think of thanks to DD, as meaning a goblin with more hit dice therefore worse uh-huh, therefore yeah. meaner uh that just means a goblin in your house okay because hob means house mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you your hobgoblin is just your house goblin the goblin you keep around so maybe he's actually nicer than other goblins because at least he's in the house and is used to the cat Whereas, you know, some outsider goblin might be a problem goblin. And so when Puck in Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream calls himself a hobgoblin, what he means is, I'm the goblin uh, of the house of King Oberon. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. So that's, uh, uh, so that's where that, you know, sort of meaning comes from. And then, of course, again, because language shifts, it's not like we have some sort of obligation to... Shakespeare to keep the language the same as it was in the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And now we think of hob as like, oh, it must be one worse because it's another sort of unpleasant sounding word that we've added to goblin. So there we go. <laughs> right? And also because you do need something that has more hit dice than a regular goblin and hobgoblin's just sitting there, obviously. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So besides the, uh, the obvious way of uh, getting rid of uh, a goblin with uh, just removing its hit dice... Uh, <laughs> the simple way. <laughs> the simple way. The simple way. Uh, say, say one had a, a large. Uh, let me check, check, check. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, say someone had a uh, large infestation of goblins, and you didn't want to kill them. How would you get rid of them, Ken? Um, I think in most in, in most medieval times, uh, you'd call the priest and you'd say, "My house is full of goblins," and if the priest was sort of, you know, go along to get along, he'd say, great, great, I'll be down there, I'll, I'll say some prayers, sprinkle some holy water, that'll take care of your goblin problem. Um, if, uh, you know, they were uh, either someone who 
read a lot of Aquinas and didn't believe in goblins or, or whatever, then you'd be stuck with sort of folk remedies and that would be things, and that would depend uh, place to place. So it might be you put salt on the door and then the goblin can't get in or you change all your clothes around to be backwards and the goblin comes in like, I'm in the wrong house and he leaves. <laughs> um, and, and so the uh, every little area has its own sort of general specifics against um, uh, elves or fairies or goblins or whatever they are in some areas. Um, you would hang up a horseshoe and the iron would scare the goblins away because they can't touch iron. Or you would um, uh, have uh, the blacksmith come by and, and, and bang in your yard and the noise would draw the goblins out and they'd see the blacksmith is here and then they'd run away because they were scared of the blacksmith. So you would have various generic customs or specific customs rather. They, they were not really generic. And then as, you know, hundreds of years passed by and people stop believing in goblins or only use them to, you know, threaten kids or they only repeat them to earnest Victorian folklorists, then you start to have these sort of codified rules of goblining. But uh, each little community would have their little body of lore about, you know, what makes, you know, what, what makes your goblins go away. And the degree to which you can argue, I mean, the, the difference between a, a pre-scientific and a post-scientific culture is Post-scientific culture draws a very bright line between things that it is reasonable to believe and things mm -hmm. that it is unreasonable to believe, right? We yeah. believe in, you know, gravity and uh, viruses and all kinds of other things you can't see, but we believe in them because science has demonstrated their existence. Mm -hmm. And things science has not demonstrated the existence of, angels, goblins, uh, UFOs, whatever else, if you believe in those, you're thought of as a weirdo. But back in medieval times, we, they had just as many weirdos as we did, but there was no epistemological, epistemological way to determine what a priori to believe in, except the church. And so it came down to your individual parish priest. Did he say, yes, there's goblins, and get rid of them with prayer and not touching yourself? Or did uh, you have a, a priest who said, there's no such thing as goblins, you're being crazy, you're probably being deluded by the devil, who definitely exists. And the way to get rid of that is prayer and stop touching yourself. So <laughs> that was, I mean, that was basically the uh, the approach forever. And there was not like, you know, are goblins, yes, are goblins, no. And then in the uh, uh, 17th century, people start sorting out, are mermaids real? Uh, what about sea cows? Sea cows are real. Are mermaids real? Are mermaids sea cows? And we start seeing that beginning of the sort of scientific approach to goblins that uh, has yielded podcasts about goblins, I guess, in the ultimate extension. Hmm. All right. How would you get rid of goblins in a cyberpunk setting? Um, if they're the same as, I mean, if, if somehow you had a medieval goblin in a cyberpunk world, as opposed to a cyberpunk goblin, which is going to be a orc with a, you know, identity problem, <laughs> uh, who is just, um, uh, you know, he's wandering around, you know, driving your van or whatever that they have goblins do in, in Shadowrun. Our Decker um, has amnesia and thinks he's a goblin. <laughs> thinks he's a goblin because he's an orc, and obviously you could get confused, um, like Tolkien did. Uh, <laughs> but if you had a an infestation of goblins in your in your modern house, and and this I think the the. Um, the, the 1940s myth, uh, once technology got complicated enough that people couldn't necessarily understand it, mm -hmm. and it begins first with fighter pilots, um, uh, 
is that there are gremlins, which are basically goblins, but for mechanical things. So, you know, moving one step down the road, you could have, you know, uh, you know, botlins or something that are, you know, something digital that are messing with you. And we have them. And anytime something on the internet happens that we don't like, we say, oh, that was trolls. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it might actually be somewhat the well-founded opinion, the opposite of yours, but that can't be because my opinion is sacrosanct. Social media tells me so. So it must be trolls. It must be an invisible, uh, malign, mischievous creature that just exists to annoy. And again, <laughs> we are back to a medieval world because guess what? Out, out there on, on the internet, there are indeed malign, mischievous creatures that exist just to annoy, but there's also, you know, lots of other stuff going on. So I, I think you asked... How do we have a cyberpunk goblin? We got him now. And how do you get rid of him? You know, ruthlessly prune your social media feed. <laughs> <laughs> right? You, um, uh, you, you call upon uh, Norton Antivirus to exercise your house. You put up a, um, uh, a rose emoji or a, or a Peppy the Frog emoji, depending on which kind of troll you feel you're uh, 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 oppressed by. Uh -huh. and, they'll, and, and they'll go away. Uh, and stop engaging with you, you know, uh, it's it basically the same way they got rid of goblins in, you know, 11th century Normandy, I guess. <laughs> Pray you away and stop touching yourself. Exactly, right. <laughs> and, and good luck doing that on the internet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ken, for talking goblins with us this week. If you want to check out Ken, check out Ken at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Everywhere you find podcasts. Is there anything else that you're working on right now, Ken, that uh, people should be knowing about? Um, I'm right now doing the opening research for an expansion to Robin's Yellow King role-playing game Ooh. called San Francisco 1912, in which you play your Paris characters 17 years later uh, in California with Jack London and Ambrose Bierce and a young kid named Clark Ashton Smith who's just come down from the hills to see what this big city is about. <laughs> So that, sh that, that should be fun and exciting, um, concluding as it does with the 1912 presidential election. So that'll be the sort of climax of the, of the setting. And then obviously this is like the last years of the Barbary Coast in uh, San Francisco. It's the yeah. first years of jazz uh, in America. San Francisco was a, a giant uh, a, a progenitor of the jazz scene outside New Orleans. And so th there's a lot of other things going on in San Francisco besides um, uh, besides uh, the, um, you know, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, George Sterling, Bohemian Grove set. But those guys are pretty interesting all by themselves. So it should be fun. And, uh, you know, uh, I get, I'm doing the fun part where I read, like, you know, Herbert Asbury and, and whatever and try and figure out uh, who goes where and, uh, and, and, and who's famous enough that I can allude to them and who needs a little more explanation. Than that. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Sounds like fun. Cool. Yep. Well, thanks again so much, Ken, and we'll talk to you next time. We need to find out something about some sort of supernatural critter or ancient god or time period that we're just not 100% familiar with. Happy to be your goblin, goblin king, goblin <laughs> marketer, whatever it is. Sounds good. All right. Thanks no so problem. much, Ken. Hey, everyone. This is just a reminder to, hey, rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends about Radio Free Oleander. If you're driving through Oleander, go to Uncle Owen's farm and pick up some goat's milk or some uh, goat soap, a t-shirt. Go get a t-shirt from one of the many places in town.
Or you can go to pgttcm.com and pick up one of the t-shirts if you don't feel like driving to Oleander. So support the show that way. Look in the show notes and see who you can support besides our show because there's people who need money and then there's us. I mean, we're a radio station in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. We don't need the money. Other people do. All right. Thank you so much. I'm not going to tell you any more of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. This episode is also brought to you by bunnieslippers.com and founditemclothing.com. Keep warm. Look cool. Founditemclothing, bunnieslippers.com. Dress like your favorite cool guys from your favorite 80s movies. Look stylish when you put uh, fuzzy things on your feet. Go to both. Look like Chris Knight from Real Genius. Here we go. Greetings and welcome to episode one, part one, of progressive rock music as weird fiction. I'm your host, D.B. Spitzer, and this week we will be talking about part one of Here Come the Warm Jets by Eno. Here Come the Warm Jets is the debut album of Brian Eno, credited as Eno, released on Island Records in 1974. It was recorded and produced by Eno following his departure from the band Roxy Music, blends glam and pop stylings with avant-garde approaches. The album features various musicians, including members of Roxy Music, Hawkwind, Matching Mole, Pink Fairies, as well as Chris Speeding and Robert Fripp of King Crimson. In developing lyrics and music, Eno used unusual methods and instructions to obtain unexpected results. Here come the warm jets peaked at number 26 on the United Kingdom, 151 on the US Billboard charts, receiving mostly positive reviews. It was reissued on compact disc in 1990 on Island Records and remastered in 2004 on Virgin Records. What I will be discussing this particular episode is the first half of Here Come the... No, hmm. We're just going to discuss Here Come the Warm Jets. Not every track on this album feels like a weird fiction tale. Uh, and something I have to say is there's something about Brian Eno that I find personally very intriguing. It, 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 something about it reminds me of uh, kind of like, I don't know if Algernon Blackwood or uh, Arthur Mackin wrote avant-garde avant pop music in the early 70s. I mean, just something, there's there's this eerie quality that runs through Eno's music, and there is this uh, kind of, like, unintelligibleness to some of the lyrics that are, you know, it's, it's just words that are put together just to create sounds in some cases, but when you think about what it's being said, it's, it's like, wait a minute, what? And that's kind of what we're going to be discussing, is the wait-a-minute-what of Here Come the Warm Jets, which... Here Come the Warm Jets refers to kind of something that Brian Eno went, oh, synchronicity. Um, there was a playing card with a woman urinating on it, on the back of it, and uh, then there was a uh, sound for the title track, Here Come the Warm Jets, which Eno felt sounded like a tuned jet and uh yeah you can look that up that's all over the internet that's real deal stuff <laughs> anyway 
So here come the warm jets. First track on it is Needles in the Camel's Eye, which is pretty much just kind of uh, just pop pop lyrics. Those who know, they don't let it show. They just give you one long glance and you go, oh, oh, oh. Goes to the show, how the winds blow, the weather's fine and I feel so, 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 birds of prey with too much to say. Oh, what could be my destiny another rainy day? Just Sounds like, I don't know, maybe a bunch of gossipy people in a scene. Nothing too terribly, I don't know. <sighs> Nothing terribly <laughs> weird fictiony about that. A. William Underwood, born 1855, was a young African-American man from Pawpaw, Michigan, purported to have pyro kinetic abilities. But you can't treat it lightly and you have to face the consequences. All my worst fears are grounded. You have to make the choice between the pop on the robot or journey. Brian Eno has a song called the Papa Negro Blowtorch about a, uh, describes a scenario in which the protagonist's lover leaves him for that gentleman. And <laughs> it's, 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 it's the bit about, <sighs> the bit about A.W. Underwood is a bit of weird fiction, but um, my, 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 we're treating each other just like strangers. I can't ignore the significance of these changes. It's, it's about, it's about a breakup, but then it's like about who the breakup's over is, is, is about a man who can breathe fire from Pawpaw, Michigan. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, there's, there's, there's a bit of a weird fiction bit to that. I mean... I'm I'm sure I I I recall like uh, bits in the fifties and stuff like that. My my lover left me for a Martian. The next track is Baby's on Fire. Uh, Baby's on Fire, better throw her in the water. Laugh. Look at her laughing like a heifer to a slaughter. Um, just pretty much as you go through the, the, uh, go through the lyrics, it sounds like uh, character assassinations in a uh, scene of people. Uh, yeah. If you'd be my flotsam, I could be half the man I used to. They said you were half stuff, and that's what baby's been reduced to. Yes. Uh, not necessarily the weird fiction stuff that I was talking about, but it is interesting. There's a narrative about people being weird and strange violence. I mean, eh, it's a tinge of weird fiction on real life, honestly. Cindy tells me. Cindy tells me the rich girls are weeping. Cindy tells me they've given up sleeping alone. Now they're so confused by their new freedoms. 
And she tells me they're selling off their masonettes, left their hot points to rust in their kitchenettes, and they're saving their labors for insane readings. Yes, no, not very much weird fiction, but very kind of like, um, I don't know, uh, upper middle class rich women discovering, <laughs> upper middle class rich, upper middle class women discovering freedoms uh, in the early 70s and uh, giving up what they felt that they had to do and then picking it back up as a hobby. Um, I don't know, and some people have said it's also a criticism of the uh, feminist movements of the early 1970s, how they excluded uh, middle class and minority women, but that's not what we're talking about here. Not middle class, working class. driving me backwards. Oh, do, 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 I'll be there. Oh, driving me backwards. Kids like me, gotta be crazy. Moving me forwards. Perhaps you think I'm lazy. Meet my relations. All of them grinning like face packs. Such sweet inspiration. Curl me up, a flag and an ice cap. Now I've found a sweetheart treats me good, just like an armchair. I have to think about nothing, difficult, I'm most temperamental. I give up my good living, typical, I'm most sentimental. Ah, launas, black reptiles, sliding round, making chemical choices, and she responds as respected, to the sound, hysterical voices, and you, are driving me backwards. Kids like me gotta be crazy. Do 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 da. I'll be there. Yes, driving me backwards. Starting to get a little bit weird. Starting to get more experimental. Hmm. And uh, it's it's good. I mean, listen. It has a quality much like a unreliable narrator or someone who's going mad, in my opinion. On some faraway beach is a very weird fiction. It could be interpreted as very weird fiction. Given the chance, I die like a baby. On some faraway beach, when the season's over, unlikely I'll be remembered. As the tide brushes sand in my eyes, I'll drift away. Cast up from the prattle, with only one memory, a single syllable. Oh, lie low, lie low, lie low. Lie, 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 lie,
lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie, lie. Yes. Um, there's a poeticness to it that does make me think of gentlemen like Arthur Mackin or Robert W. Chambers. Anyway, um, it makes me think of stranded spacemen. It makes me think of stories like The Wall of Eryx. It, I don't know, a helplessness. A strange, strange helplessness. The next, the next song is Blank Frame, which makes me think of, uh, oh, I know this isn't influenced by the Cthulhu mythos, but it makes me think of some sort of like psychopomp, some sort of like mythosy kind of like uh, guardian threshold, like Haster or, uh, you know, um, one of those guys. But Blank Frank is the messenger of your doom and your destruction. Yes, he is the one who will set you up as nothing. And he is the one who will look at you sideways. His particular skill is leaving bombs in people's driveways. Blank Frank has a memory that's as cold as an iceberg. The only time he speaks is in incompreh <laughs> incomprehensible proverbs. Blank Frank is the siren, he's the air raid, he's the crater. He's on the menu, on the table, he's the knife, and he's the waiter. Um, then there's a lot of like kind of nonsensical noises uh, like someone is losing their stuff anyway um, I don't know a story by an unreliable narrator a madman or, or, or is, it, is it prophecy what who is blank Frank He's the gate and the key? What? What? Huh? Anyway. Dead Finks Don't Talk has a bit of humor to it, but also a bit of ghoulishness to it. Oh, cheeky cheeky. Oh, naughty sneaky. You're so perceptive, and I wonder how you knew. But these Finks don't walk too well. A bad sense of direction. And so they stumble round in threes. Such a strange collection. Oh, you poor headless chicken. Can your poor teeth take so much kicking? You're always so charming. As you peck your way up there, he sings. But these finks don't dress too well, no discrimination. To be a zombie all the time requires such dedication. Oh please, sir, will you let it go by? Cause I failed both tests, my legs both tied. In my place, the stuff is all there. I've been ever so sad for a very long time. My, my, they wanted the works, can you... <clears throat> 
can you this, that, I never got the letter back. More fool, more fool me, bless my soul, repeated. O oh, perfect masters, they thrive on disasters. They all look so harmless till they find their way up here. But dead finks don't talk too well. They've got a shaky sense of diction. It's not so much a living hell, just a dying fiction. And then there's a noise. Some of them are old. People come and go and forget to close the doors and leave their stains in cigarette butts trampled on the floor. But when they do, remember me, remember me. There's some elements to this that feel like it could be an element of like uh, weird fiction, but just like people remembering things. I mean, <laughs> yes, based off the first lines. Um, no, but there, there, there is. Some of them are old. Some of them are new. Some of them will turn up when you least expect them to. And when you do, remember me. Remember me, Lucy. You're my girl. Lucy, you're a star. Lucy. Please be still and hide your madness in a jar, but do beware, it will follow you. It will follow you. Some of them are old, but it, <clears throat> but it would help if you could smile. To earn a crooked sixpence, you will walk many crooked miles, and when you do, remember me, remember me. I don't know, it feels... It feels like someone's read, someone knows how to write, and it just feels good. It's, it's, it's when you read something and you go, oh yeah, no, that's well constructed. Even if it was constructed in just a few moments put together to go with music, it's well constructed, in my personal opinion, which I'm on this side of the microphone. If you disagree, contact us at pgttcm.com. And then finally, uh, the, the the title track for the album, Here Come the Warm Jets, which is played with three guitars, um, kind of open tuned to G. It kind of feels like, <laughs> um, sounds like, but it's like this. And the song is Further We Claim on Our Tees. Dawn in her here, we're nowhere to be, nowhere to be, nowhere to be. Father stains, we're all on our knees. Down on our words, we're nothing to be, nothing to be, nothing to be. Further down, we're all on our sails, paid to appease, though we've nothing these days. Nothing these days, nothing these days. Further down, we, <clears throat> further still, they're stall in a daze. We're down on our knees with nothing to say, nothing to say. Um, people uh, 
kind of guess that this has something to do with, uh, I don't know, some sort of reference to golden showers or something like that. I, um, this, this just feels more like, I don't know, uh, words put in to create kind of a rhythmic thing. Kind of, mm. Words without meaning used to create a rhythmic pattern. I, I don't know music well enough to uh, describe that. <laughs> then why are you talking about this? Good point. I'm done. That's not true. No, here come the warm jets. Um, there's other albums that are a little bit more and have a little bit more weird fictiony type feels when it comes to progressive rock, art rock, and that kind of stuff. But this is the one that I wanted to start with. Here come the warm jets. I'm probably going to do another Brian Eno next time, but there will be ones. And if you have ones that you want to suggest, you want to say, hey, what about this is this? And I'm like, hey, that's a great idea. But this, this, this one, I wanted to give you an idea of what I'm talking about and what I want to do. So thank you so much. You're listening to 11.30 a.m. KZOM, Oleander, Oregon. All right. Up next is the Farm Report with Farmer Dave. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Good morning, everyone. Time for the Farm Report with Farmer Dave. Here he is, Farmer Dave. Hey, everyone. This is Farmer Dave, and you're listening to Radio Free Oleander, 1130 on your AM dial, KZOM. And if you're just tuning in, we were talking to... Uh, Ranger Rick Okasik. Ranger Rick has been going over the different types of animal scat that you can find here in northern Clackamas County. Um, For those of you that were listening, uh, you did not have to see the samples that he brought in, nor did you have to smell them, but he did go into minute detail what the different animal scats look like. So I think you've got a good idea. Hey, and uh, I'm going to be leaving the studio soon, uh, but we've got a really good show coming up uh, in the 10 to midnight hour, and that is uh, drummer uh, Kim Tree, who is a female drummer in Oleander's own band, The Stinky Ducks. And she's going to go over the history of female drummers. Uh, But we've got a little bit more uh, time to share. And for those of you that aren't in uh, northern uh, Clackamas County, the Oleander area, Oregon Triangle, you may be listening on uh, the internet. Uh, So uh, uh, D.B. Spitzer, who is our... our, uh, uh, editor here, and he's working with Radio Oleander. What he's doing is, so I have a, a I have two shows that I broadcast here from the station. Uh, I cover the eight to ten o'clock hour every Tuesday and Thursday, and I end each show with on my Tuesday nights. I'm gonna end each show because after we do our guests, we've got about oh, 30, 20 minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever left. And I'm going to, this is going to be Dave's Pop Corner. And where we're going to talk about 
um, some type of pop culture thing that I want to talk about. Uh, and we'll talk about it last 20, 30 minutes before uh, the next host comes in. Now, on Thursday night, we're going to have a 20, 30 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever's at the end. And that we're going to have, it's going to be called The People of Oleander. And that's going to be a story about somebody here in Oleander. So on Tuesday, like tonight, we're going to um, do a, a sh basically a pop, Dave's Pop Corner. And we're going to talk about some sort of pop culture. Uh, I think it's actually going to be Dave's Pop Culture Corner, so excuse me. Um, then DB is going to basically take that week's uh, Dave's Pop Culture Corner and the people of Oleander from the week, put them together, and do a 30-minute show that you can, or you may be, listening on the internet right now. So here on DPCC, we're going we're gonna to talk about a prop, and a prop in this case that is so much personality, so much screen time, so much written about it, that it's, it's almost a character. And things like, you know, Darth Vader's red lightsaber. It's almost a character. Uh, the Ark and Raiders of the Lost Ark. It, it's so much, it's, it's almost a character. It's not just a, a McGreffin or a, you know, it's not just a prop. It's, it's a character. And we're going to talk about one of, I think, the original props that was seen as a character. And that is James Bond's PPK or Walther PPK. I've got sort of a love-hate relationship with Bond. I love the spy. I love the, the gadgets. I love the villains. I have a lot of problem with Fleming's belief on women. Um, more so in the book sometimes than um, in the movies. Uh, but that's going to be another show. So we're going to talk about, we're going to leave that aside, and we're going to talk about the gun that made James Bond. So yeah, it's a real gun. It was from Germany. And PPK stands for Police Pistolen Criminal. And I just messed up in German, so feel free to write and see how bad my German is. But uh, basically it translates into Police Pistol Criminal. I have heard people also interpret it as uh, police pistol compact. So it was basically a smaller gun for undercover work. And after World War II, it was a, a pretty ubiquitous gun. Uh, so I have actually seen interviews with police officers in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and they said it really was a preferred gun often for undercover work because it was a, a, a pretty common gun. And so if an undercover cop was pretending to be a criminal and he had that gun, it wasn't a, it wasn't a tip-off. It wasn't like he, he had a chief special or, you know, a, a gun that's more associated with the, the police, especially like in the 60s, like a, uh, a Smith & Wesson revolver. Besides being James Bond's gun of choice, some trivia facts about uh, PPK. It is Fox Mulder's backup pistol is a PPK, as well as the gun that Hitler used to kill himself. 
Now, the, the story of how Bond got the uh, Walter PPK is, is a pretty famous one, but I want to share it. Uh, originally, he had a Beretta 25, and, and it made sense for Fleming, for his character, to use a, a 25 caliber Beretta because that was the gun that was issued to him during World War II from British Naval Intelligence. So in the first five novels, Bond uses a, a Beretta 418, and, which is a, a 25 caliber gun. And then um, gun enthusiast, uh, gun expert, uh, Godfrey uh, Bothroyd basically writes Fleming and he says, you know, if you're gonna make these a more accurate story, you need to upgrade the gun. Just that 25 just does not have the kick. It doesn't have the firepower to take out the bad guys. And so he basically suggests using the PPK for a balance of concealability and takedown. Um, so the Walther PPK appears in the first Bond movie, which is Dr. No, and the sixth Bond book, which is Dr. No. So, um, in the book, Bond's Beretta gets caught in, in the holster. Now, in the movie, in Dr. No, he's talking to Armorer, and so they actually name the Armorer, who is basically the first Q in Dr. No, uh, Major uh, Bothroyd, after, you know, the guy wrote uh, Fleming the note about saying, hey, you need to upgrade. Um, so that the gun jammed. Uh, in the book, it's that his twenty five uh, is caught in the holster. So in the book and the movie, this is where Bond is introduced to his now famous gun. And... He doesn't want it, at least in the movie, you know. He wants to keep his twenty-five, but he is told that he will be demoted back to just regular intelligence, and he will lose his double status if he doesn't accept this gun. And so he's very reluctant to take it first, but he uses it with amazing efficiency. And it becomes part of him. It literally becomes, you know, part of his hand, practically, where he is so accurate. And the story-wise is he didn't want to give up the, the 25 because he didn't miss. He didn't miss with his 25 caliber. But it was the other factors. And so his, his accuracy and his ability to aim is inherited by the Walther PPK. An interesting story is that in the Italian version of Dr. No, they actually take out the, 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 the brand name Beretta so it won't offend Italian audiences. So the, the Walther PPK, it sort of comes to a, a high point in The Man with the, the Golden Gun where Bond is basically, you know, his trademark weapon uh, against the man with the golden gun's trademark weapon. Uh, and of course, uh, Bond with the PPK is um, successful. Spoilers. Now, as the series progresses, 
you know, they had to replace James Bond. I mean, different actors come at different times. And we get that with the gun, too. Because you got to remember, the first Walther PPK was made in 1930. So, you know, by the year 2000, it's a 70-year-old gun design. So, with Tomorrow Never Dies, Bond is basically upgraded with a more modern gun, a, a, a Wonder 9. And that is the Walther 99. Uh, if you're not familiar, a Wonder 9 is basically a high-capacity 9mm pistol. And then when Daniel Craig comes along, so there's a lot of, in the original publicity stu- uh, films, or, or shots, that you know, Bond is going to have a PPK again. And it's kind of a trick, though, because, you know, Bond uses a PPK in the beginning, in the pre-credit scene, but as soon as he becomes a double O, you know, becomes, you know, licensed to kill, he is upgraded with a Walther 99. But then, something's missing. It really was, and I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that the fact that quite a few movies that, that he didn't have the PPK made the bad movies, but, you know, it was missing. So, in Skyfall, he gets his gun back, and there's the scene where he's in the museum, and uh, the new quartermaster gives him the gun, you know, and, and he says, blunt out, this is more a, a personal statement than a random killing machine. Uh, and it's it's a different PBK, though. It's not the same one that the original Bond used. Uh, it's upgraded. It's a 9mm. Uh, it's got this handprint thing so that no one else can use it. Uh, so it's a different one. And if you listen, if you look at the, compare the two scenes, and I did, I actually, you can go on YouTube and watch them back to back. Uh, the original scene in Dr. No, it's where we are getting to know Bond, and this new gun is forced upon him. And he, and the, you know, just as the audience is coming along with this trip and his adventure with him, this gun is getting to going along with him. And in ways, the audience is kind of the gun. It's it's being forced upon this spy, and we're going to be watching over your shoulder. And if you don't like it, 007, then you can just quit. But if you look at Skyfall, it's different. It's the, the, the PBK is no longer the new. James Bond is no longer the new. It's a return to the old. It's a return to the tradition. It's an old man's gun and an experienced man's gun. It's a gun that has served him well. Uh, in American movies, we often do that with the Colt 45. You'll notice that the, like uh, Sam in um, Ronin, he has, he's mocked for carrying, you know, an M1911, a 45. But it's a traditional gun. It's, it's the gun of the old generation and, and that's sort of played with when the the you know he he makes fun of Q of having acne because he's so young you know and Q says why you know I can kill people uh, uh, in my uh, pajamas uh, with my laptop 
and but it's the old generation and the new generation returning. So in that scene, the, the Walther PPK is coming back, but it's not the same. It's different. It's it's been updated for for modern society, for new types of bad guys. And again, this is Radio Free Oleander, and I am Farmer Dave, and this is KZOM 11:30 on your AM dial. And I am about to head off, and I'm going to turn over this chair and this microphone to the very talented Kim Tree, drummer for Stinky Duck, and she is going to go ahead and uh, talk about, for the next two hours, the history of female drummers. Until next time, Oleander, I am out of here. Hey everybody, uh, it's Farmer Dave, and I've got some great news. My goats are back. Yeah, uh, Solomon and Sonia, they're, they're back. Uh, you know, I, I was worried, but you know, I, I had faith they'd come back. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was just working in the house. I just finished up in the barn, and, and there's this knock on my door. And there's through, come there, there's, there's, Three old men, um, and they're um, they're wearing you know blue coveralls, and they've got these sort of red sort of conical hats, and they, these huge sort of sort of beards. I mean, I like my beard, but these beards were like impressive and gray. Uh, and uh, they apparently have bought or bought the uh, the uh, old um, uh, cattle farm up. Uh, uh, up by uh, Raven Road, and um, one of them's name, as near as I can get, is Bjork, and the other two were named Olaf. Uh, kind of wheezy gentleman. It was very hard for them to sort of talk, uh, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for them, and, and I mean this is no insult. Um, English was not their first language. Uh, they're obviously from some um, Scandinavian country originally. Uh, and apparently they found the goats a couple days, as near as I can tell from what they're saying. And the goats just hung around, and eventually, uh, I guess, the, the goats started heading home. And so they wanted to follow and make sure that, you know, they weren't hit by a truck or anything. And make sure that they got to the right house, and I'm grateful. Uh, really nice guys. Uh, they do kind of smell of lutefish. And, but that's fine, you know, that's fine. But yeah, they have this sort of a distinct lutefish smell to them. But, um, hey, you know, I'm happy, you know, and they were happy with the goat cheese I gave them, and, you know, I offered to give them a, a ride back to their, their uh, farm, and, you know, they, they wanted to walk, and, you know, I, I'm going to have Pinky, uh, Dr. Tuscadero, uh, look at, uh, uh, you know, Solomon and Sonia, but as near as I can tell, they're happy, and they're fine, so, hey, I really want to thank everyone in Oleander who was just keeping an eye out for uh, my goats. And I really want to thank Bjorg and the Olafs for uh, bringing them back. The goats came back and the goats came back. Hey, nah, hey, nah, the goats came back. Hey, it's Lake Wobegon on crack. No. 
<laughs> hey everyone, thank you for listening to Radio Free Oleander. Up next week, we've got a parade. It's a Viking Day parade. It's a Renaissance parade. It's a Plague Doctor parade. So yeah, uh, Mayor said, don't talk crap about the parade. Be positive about the parade. The parade will bring money to the town and... Then we won't have to sell our road. No, I didn't say that part. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for checking out our shows. And please, visit Oleander, Oregon. Spend some money here. Help keep this town alive. And you know what, Dave? I'm glad I wasn't there when you talked to your new friends, because I would have said some joke like, I'm Bjorn, and this is my brother Olaf, and this is my other brother Olaf. I have no idea what kind of accent that was supposed to be. Uh, Northern European, I'm guessing, possibly, I don't know, Prussian? Like, weird Swedish-German-French combo? I don't know. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I mean, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I mean, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. I mean, Dave's Corner of the Universe. I mean, Radio Free Oleander. You know what I meant. If you want to help the show, you know where to go. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram, I think? I don't know. Radio Free Oleander. Look at us. Look us up. I mean, I don't think there's any other Radio Free Oleander out there. Rate, review, subscribe. Something in the show notes, I'm sure, will help you how to do that. Thank you so much. And remember, there's something that we should say at the end of the show, but I haven't written it yet. Have a good day. Also, special thanks to Ken Height. Thank you so much, Ken, for helping us with our goblin problem. Which it may not be a goblins, it may just be little men on goats. All right, next week. Radio Free Oleander was created by David Heath and D.B. Spitzer. Do you want to help out? Do you want to be part of the show? Do you want to lend your voice, a story, a poem? Do you have ideas for the show? Let us know. Contact us through the show, and we'll get back to you. Thank you so much for listening. We think you're great if you think we're great. And even if you don't think we're great, hey, thank you for listening. If you want to leave a review, we'll read it, especially five-star reviews. All right. Thank you so much. Radio Free Oleander. Peace.